Hi, ABC. I'm Carrie. I'm the Women's Ministry Director here, and there are a few things that I want to tell you about. First off, we have a worship night in our outdoor parking lot tonight at 6 p.m. So come bring your family down. We'll spend some time worshiping and having communion together. Parents, if you have a student in middle school or in high school, our fall kickoff is coming up soon. Middle school kickoff is Tuesday, August 30th, and high school kickoff is Wednesday, August 31st. The students all need to re-register online to begin this new year, so please go on our website and register your student for youth group. Women, we have a lot of fun and exciting things coming up in women's ministry. We're starting our Mom-to-Mom program on September 1st. Mom-to-Mom is our Bible-based ministry that equips women to be more like Jesus in the context of our households. And we're starting up the year. So if you would like to register for Mom-to-Mom, you can go on our website, abcchurch.org women. We meet the first Thursday of every month, and we meet in the mornings at 9 a.m. or in the evenings at 7 p.m. And we would love to have you join us. We also are having our fall Bible study starting up on September 6th. This fall, we're going through the book of Mark and we would love to have you join us. We're meeting on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and Tuesdays at 6 p.m. This is gonna be a great study for anyone who is a new believer or even for those of you who are seasoned believers who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Studying the Gospel of Mark should be a really sweet time together and we hope that you join us. Ladies, we'll be having a women's fall kickoff on August 28th, right here at the church at 6 p.m. in our courtyard. We'll have lemonade and cookies. It should be a great time to come meet some new friends and see some other friends that we haven't seen all summer. Please join us. And finally, ladies, we have just a few more spots available for our women's retreat at Hume Lake. The weekend is September 16th through the 18th, and we'd love for you to join us. If you need more information, you can go on the website or you can email me, carrie at abcchurch.org. You can email me with any questions about any of these women's events and I'll be happy to respond. We're so thankful that you joined us this morning and here's Pastor Jake to bring the word for us. Okay, there's this one passage where Jesus says two ideas and I think arguably they are the world's least favorite idea that Jesus has to offer right next to Jesus's, uh, fav- uh, the world's favorite idea that Jesus has to offer, sandwiched in two verses and four sentences. And they're right here in Matthew chapter 7, 12 through 14. I'm just going to read right through that. Matthew chapter 7, 12 through 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So my wife and I have watched through Friday Night Lights a couple times, uh, two, two times, no more than two times. Uh, and it's a fine show. It's a little cheesy. There's this one scene, though. If you're not familiar, um, there's a uh, an early protagonist named Jason, and he's uh, kind of the star quarterback. He has a really tragic accident on the football field, becomes paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, he's in a wheelchair. He kind of has to refigure out his whole life. All of his dreams and hopes are smashed. Um, and he goes from that point to working at one of the other character's dad's car dealership, Buddy Garrity's car dealerships. So he goes there and works. And there's this one scene where he sells his first car, um, and it's a cheesy scene, 
but it stands out in my memory and I'll explain why. So there's this one guy who comes into the car dealership day after day, basically just wasting everybody's time looking at this one car that he's pretty attracted to and pretty interested in, but then he goes away and he just doesn't pull the trigger on it. Comes in day after day after day. So all the salespeople on the team, they know that Gerald, this guy, has this reputation. So he comes in one day, the salesman send Jason over there. Jason's a good guy. They send Jason over there uh, to talk to him. And here's how it goes. He goes up, he says, afternoon, Gerald, how you doing today? Gerald says, all right, just, you know, came down to have a second look. But it's really like his millionth look at that car. He says, can I ask you something, Gerald? What's the problem exactly? Why won't you let yourself have this car? What is it really? Is it that if you buy this car, you're gonna find another car you like better elsewhere immediately after buying it? Or is it that you just don't think you deserve the car? And he's like, you don't know me. And he's like, no, 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 Gerald, please. I'm not insulting you, so please don't take it like that. I'm just trying to understand. Because listen, all these salespeople over here, take a look at them. They sent me over here because they've given up on you, all right? They sent me, the rookie, little man on the totem pole to talk to you because none of them believe that you can pull the trigger on actually purchasing a vehicle. But let me tell you something. I know you love this car. I know you love this car so much that you come in two days a week, two days a week, he says it twice, just to look at it. And then you walk out and the music is starting to build here, real cheesy-like. Gerald, life's too short, man. Life is too short. Okay, things change in an instant. Take a look at me. And he like points down to his wheelchair. Okay, so be a man. Take control of your life. Be a man. Buy this car. Show all those people that they're wrong, that you can make a decision. And he's like, I'm really gonna think about it. And then he says, no, no more thinking, Gerald. No more thinking. No more dithering. No more wasting everybody's time, especially your own, because that's what you're doing. You're wasting your time every time you come in here. Buy this car because you love it and because you want this car and you want to drive off the lot today in this car. Buy it. And Gerald is like, he kind of backs up. He's like, okay. And Jason says, okay. Mr. Garrity, Gerald would like to start paperwork on purchasing this car. End of scene. Okay, I know, really silly scene, just dumb old school sales thing, cheesy music building in the background. And listen, the idea today is not that you have to buy the car. It's that there comes a point when you can't postpone a decision any longer. There comes a point when after being attracted to something or the idea of something, you will gather all the info that you need to gather. You will know everything you need to know about that thing. You know you're interested in it, you're attracted to the idea of it, but you can't just keep liking the idea of something for the rest of your life. You need to, at some point, decide what you're gonna do about that thing. There's actually a lot of misery and unhappiness in that space between thinking, I like the idea of something, and not deciding what you're gonna do about that thing, right? Like at some point, you either need to decide, I'm going to buy that car, or I'm going to decide not to buy the car. And funny enough, both will land you potentially in the same spot of, of happiness or contentment. I would argue more deciding not to buy it might train that contentment muscle better, but it doesn't even matter whether you buy it or not, you just need to decide which one to do. We're always moving in that direction with everything, needing to move past this point of being attracted to something to the point of deciding what we're gonna do about it. And that's the idea today that I think we see in Jesus. Jesus calls us from attraction to decision. Jesus calls us from attraction to decision. 
Let's look at the flow of this text. Like I said, I think it's the world's favorite and least favorite ideas that Jesus has to offer, sandwiched together in four sentences and just a couple verses. So like up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, you just see this crowd starting to assemble around Jesus and around his compelling teaching and his attractive new ethics. You can almost feel like his public approval starting to rise and climb. And then it climaxes in what I think is one of the most well-loved verses of all time, what we call the golden rule. And we're like, yes, Jesus, the people love you. Yes, keep going. And then he says something that you just don't expect him to say right after being so winsome. He says, there's a small entrance to a hard journey that leads to life. Enter it. Not a lot of people will. And you just feel the approval ratings plummet. Jesus, we really liked where this was going, but you just lost us. And that's the thing that really strikes me about these two ideas sitting side by side. I think this is where Jesus loses people in this space, from the rich young ruler to the majority of our modern culture. This space between his compelling ethical ideas and his exclusive call to follow him. This is where our world simply checks out. It's like, okay, Jesus, love your enemies was cool. I loved that. The Beatitudes, that was pretty sweet, really subversive and upside down. The anger management stuff was kind of cool. Even the stuff on lust and divorce, like that was hard and challenging, but still I could see the beauty in it. I could see the faithfulness in it. I love your ideas, Jesus, but this call to exclusivity, to say that your ethics are the ethics, well, that's a bit much. In fact, I worry that's dangerous and damaging to our culture, that kind of exclusivity. I think that's sort of the sentiment of our world. But that's the kind of turn Jesus takes here unapologetically. So don't miss it. It's this really surprising sequence of thought in Jesus that leads to this really demanding idea. What he's doing is calling us deeper than what we're naturally attracted to about Jesus and to embrace everything that's true about him and everything that's true about his world, moving from this place of attraction to decision. So let's go to two kind of chunks of teaching. We'll take these two ideas, teach through them, and then talk about them after that. The first verse right there is something we call the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. It's verse 12. First, where do we get the term the golden rule? In the second century, the saying had already spread around the Mediterranean so much and was already so popular. Uh, there's a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, who loved it so much that he had it inscribed on gold in his chambers. And so then from there on, people called it the golden rule. Now, if you look at the text, look at the words. First, notice the word so at the beginning of the verse. Um, a word that can also be translated as therefore, which always tells you to look which way. It tells you to look backwards to see what came just before. Ultimately, we see that this call to the golden rule kind of love is rooted in the love and generosity of the Father. Remember last week, Pastor Jail talked to us about asking and seeking and knocking and having a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So the one who loves to give good things to those who ask him, that is your father. That's the kind of love that he has for you. So if that's the case, here's some further instruction for you is what he's getting at. As far as we can tell, this rule was entirely new for the world, the golden rule. Historically, ethicists say there are at least three rules to live by, uh, two of which are similar to the golden rule, but not quite the same. So there's the wooden rule, the silver rule, and now from Jesus, what we call the golden rule. The wooden rule says this, 
Do to others what they do to you. Do to others what they do to you. Just level one of human maturity. Default reactivity. This is just pure retaliation. Um, hit for hit kind of retaliation. You take my toy, I kick you in the shins. You're mean to me, I talk bad behind your back. And I think that we think we outgrow this, but do we really? Next is the silver rule. So take one step up uh, in, in human maturity. And it says this, don't do to others what you would not have them do to you. Now for most decent people in the world, this is really the thing. And this is the height of how to behave ethically in relationships with other people. In fact, 100 years before Christ, there was a Jewish rabbi named Hillel, and the way he said it was, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. The book of Tobit and the Apocrypha teaches, what thou thyself hates, to no man do. Greek king Nicocles said, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. Epictetus said, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict on others. The Stoic philosopher said, what you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. This is really at the core of a religion like Buddhism too, this basic central call to do no harm. That's such a central belief. That's silver rule kind of stuff which we obviously agree with, but it just doesn't quite get there because it's all voiced in the negative form. And I think we all know that not doing bad things is not the same thing as actively doing good things. See, doing no harm is a far cry from loving your enemies. One is a lot easier than the other. That's when Jesus comes in and says this totally new phrase, the golden rule. Okay, whatever you wish others would do for you, do also for them. What I love about Jesus is how he's always making things more simple and more difficult at the same time through the New Testament. I don't know if you ever noticed that. He's taking our desire for religious rules to follow and boxes to check, and he's giving us the most broad, all-encompassing commands possible. We're like, what's the most important command, Jesus? And he's like, love the Lord your God with everything you have. Okay, I was hoping for something a little more like, you know, check the box, uh, you know, I, I could sort of like singularly cross this off. We say, okay, what, what else? And he says, whatever you wish others would do for you, do also to them. What am I supposed to do for other people? Not harm them? That's easy. Or even if you could just tell me five positive things to do for them, then I could work my way down the list and I could do those things for them. That'd be great. And he just says, you know, use your imagination. What do you wish other people would do for you? It's like he gives you permission to dream for a second and think like, man, what is it that I crave most of the people around me? I think for myself, you know, for you know, a moment of kind of selfish reflection, I mean, I wish a lot of things. I wish people would always assume the best of me. I wish they would listen to me to understand and not just respond to me. I wish that people would always tell me the truth that I need to hear, but do it in kindness and love. I wish people would pray for me and for my family and with me. I wish they would buy me coffee sometimes. I wish they would be kind and gracious to my family. I wish they would see the needs that I have, that they can help with, burdens that they can help carry. 
I wish they would see and, and take time to see and try to see if I'm hurting or if I'm afraid and if I'm anxious and just be present with me. Do I need to keep going? Like there's so many things. I, I wish a lot of things for myself. And I think these are pretty universal things. And now Jesus is just flipping the script and saying, okay, now it's not enough just to avoid doing the opposite of those things. Why don't you be the one to take the proactive step of initiative and go do these things for other people? What a challenge, right? And that's not even the most challenging part of the text, I don't think. So that's the golden rule. That's where we get it. Uh, and that's how it compares up against the other options, the other rules to live by. Next section, Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. One commentator said that there have always been but two systems of religion in the world. One is God's system of divine accomplishment and the other man's system of human achievement. Google will tell you that there's over 4,000 unique belief systems in the world today, I think 4,200 to 4,300. Still just a handful of really major dominant religions, but really over 4,000 unique streams of worldview and ultimate concern. And I don't wanna discount the diversity of those. There's plenty of differences all throughout the spectrum, but Jesus is making it abundantly clear that there are really just two options. When all is said and done, there is really just two options. There are two gates that lead to two ways that end in two destinations, and the paths are populated by two groups of people. If you put it in a graph, it looks like this. There's option number one. The gate is wide. It makes sense that a lot of people would enter into it. The way, once you get through the gate and onto the path, the way is easy, but it ends in destruction. And the people on it are many. But then you look at option number two, and the gate is narrow, which means it's harder to find. It's, um, there's less natural incentive of our own accord to find it and enter it. The way is hard but it ends in life. And there are fewer people who populate it. Now the sinister thing about it is that I think the sign in front of option number one doesn't say destruction on it. I think it says this way to the good life, just like option number two does. It says, come this way. I promise you'll be happy. Do whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. Find your truth and live it and express it. I promise it'll make you happy. Come this way. The good life is this way. Promising the same thing that option number two would. So by our own assessment, there's no good reason not to pursue the gate that is wide and the way that is easy. There's literally no reason we would or should pursue that unless someone like Jesus tells us not to. That is our default choice. And why so many people enter through it and stay on it we come out of the womb ready to travel that path. And there's so many reasons we stay on it. Maybe we feel entitled to options. So we're hearing Jesus say this really exclusive message and that turns us off of it. He's saying, this is the option, but you could go down this broad gate and there's plenty of options. There's plenty of different flavors of things there. You could try, you could mix and match, you could piecemeal your own thing, but it leads to destruction. But maybe we stay there because we feel entitled to options or like we need more options. 
We love hedging our bets as much as possible. We're put off by the exclusivity. And what Jesus is saying is just plain offensive, and it doesn't naturally sit right with us or the people in our world. And I would just say that ultimately it has to come down to that, to accepting that what he says is offensive and exclusive. For me to accept that there is no spin or polish that I could put on Jesus's words to make it more winsome or compelling for our culture. It has to come down to an issue of authority and trust. You have to, at some point, you have to decide if Jesus has the authority to say what he's saying. And if he does, will you trust him? Do you believe that Jesus has the authority to say what he's saying? And if he does, then will you trust him? Because ultimately, the question of the Sermon on the Mount, we're all building to this point. He's, he's taking his turn to his landing ideas in his sermon. The question of the Sermon on the Mount is not just, hey, what do you think of my teaching? The question is, what do you think of me? I'm not just asking you to be attracted to some ethical ideas that I'm putting out there. I'm taking a hard turn here and saying, it's time to follow me and me alone. It has to be about Jesus. And we just have to ask, okay, who is Jesus and what did he do? If he's going to say something so audacious, so offensive, so exclusive, I just have to ask, who is Jesus and what did he do? Because underneath our disdain for this exclusivity, I think is a distrust that God is good and an assertion that we know better. So what we are tempted to do is then accept the parts of Jesus that we're attracted to and ditch this exclusive commitment idea. But that's just not a valid option. Scripture doesn't leave that open to us. The way Richard Niebuhr says it is that we're trying to have a made-up version of what he calls a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. And that's not Jesus. Jesus did have a cross. And then he had a tomb. And before that, he was the one who created and is the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. He's the unique son of God. He performed miracles, namely when he rose himself from the dead. Everything he taught and he did was predicted by the prophets and was attested to by apostolic witness. The question has to be not, why is God so narrow? But why would you not trust him? Why would you not take him at his word? Has he not proved himself enough? Has he not proved his love? Has he not proved his faithfulness to us? Has he not done everything that he needs to do to save the lost sheep and to find the lost coin and to restore the prodigal back home? Has he not stretched out his nail-scarred hands wide enough to convince us that he is good and he loves us and he's for us and he's with us and that he did what only he could do so that dead people like me and you could be made alive? And we had no way and he gave us a way. We had no hope and he gave us a living hope. And we're like, oh, but it feels mean that there's only one option. What? Like, are we, we have to be kidding. We're like, man, we're not impressed. Like, we're not, it's like we're drowning and someone throws us this life raft and we're just like, ah, I'd like to see more options of life rafts. And he's like, okay, I mean, this is the one I have. We're like, I don't know, I just don't wanna be so exclusive about my life rafts. I'm not like a real narrow-minded life raft guy. I just really like options of my rafts. Come on, like what are we thinking? I think there's this pride that disguises itself as modern reason and, and sophistication that's just a trap, like a sinister trap. 
all just because we so badly don't want to submit ourselves to something other than us. So Douglas O'Donnell summarizes by saying, the question of why so narrow is a question of ingratitude and insubordination. It is as contemptible as putting Sir Alexander Fleming on trial for only giving us penicillin. Therefore, in this courtroom, I throw out this case against God. Instead, I do what God does here in his word. He puts us on trial. We must stand before him and give an account for our choices. At some point, you have to worry less about the options and more about the choice you're going to make. And so Jesus calls us to the point of decision to move past what we're naturally attracted to about him and to embrace everything that's true about him and his world, past this compelling idea and into a committed relationship with him. And it makes me think about my wedding day and the first date I had with my wife. Originally, I took steps toward my wife for fundamentally shallow reasons. I think that's true for all of us. That's just, that's what you have. I, I asked her on a date because I thought she was pretty and I thought she was funny. But on our wedding day, fast forward a year and a half to two years, on our wedding day, at that point, I'm not saying I do just because I think she's pretty and funny, although I still thought she was pretty and funny. I'm saying I do because I've learned enough about her. I've come to understand the truth about who she is. I've gathered the data I need to gather. I have the info I need to have. I understand who I can be with her. We've explored this possibility for the last two years, and now the only logical next step is to commit everything I am to her. Because at this point, we're just in too deep. At this point, we either need to make it, we either need to commit to each other forever, or we just need to cut ties. I can't just keep thinking she's pretty and funny for the rest of my life without ever doing anything about it. I either need to stop thinking that and, and cut ties or I need to commit and dive in completely. We can't just keep going that way for the rest of our lives because we've been invited into something more, into something more infinitely beautiful and deep and compelling. At some point, we have to move past that attraction to a point of decision, past the compelling idea into a committed relationship. And when we said our vows, the thing is, what we said is that we are forsaking all others. So in saying yes to you, I am saying no to every other option. This is an exclusive, narrow-minded relationship, narrow-path relationship. And I don't think anybody actually hates that. I mean, sure, people struggle against it, and some people really want to stretch the boundaries of that, maybe even say it's not natural. Maybe they think that freedom means you can do whatever you want. But I don't know that anybody really, truly hates the exclusivity of marriage. Like, why are you such a narrow-minded bigot against all the other women out there? Like, no, they admire that there's faithful commitment to this one thing. Because we know that it's the exclusivity of this relationship that brings safety and security and life. And we even see the opposite when we're tempted to push against those boundaries and the exclusivity of this relationship and break through those walls. We see we can land on a broad path of self-indulgence that leads to death and bondage, not to life and freedom. There are so many reasons to be attracted to Jesus. There are so many reasons to love him. So many ideas to be attracted to and compelled by so many cutting edge ethical ideas that flipped the paradigm on so many things. 
But ultimately, he doesn't call you to just like his teaching or to just be a fan of his punk rock posture against the Pharisees. That's like the stuff people really love, like stick it to him, Jesus. Now that might pique your interest, but he really longs to hear you say, I do. Pass that initial point of attraction to total commitment. Because the golden rule, like that's so attractive, but it only really exists on the narrow path. Only from the, the, the exclusive love of God could exist a, a kind of culture where the golden rule kind of love exists. So he gives you two options and he says the choice is yours. He calls us to move from this place of attraction to this place of decision. Now I wanna pray and I specifically wanna pray for two groups of people represented anytime we, we gather together. Uh, there are those who have decidedly put their faith in Jesus and are following him and there are always those who are not, either have not or, or maybe, maybe we have, but uh, to some lesser degree than, than all of us. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life that we have in you because of the life that you surrendered on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, for humbling yourself um, even to the point of death on a cross and for raising again so that uh, ultimately every uh, knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, we, we believe that is who you are. You're the Lord of heaven and earth. And um, through your word, once again today, you long to conform us more into the image of yourself. So we thank you for that. We thank you for what we get to do here week after week together as a church family. Um, Father, I thank you for the, the revolutionary things you taught. The fact that uh, you would speak into a, a world that thought the silver rule was all there was. I'll just, I just won't do harm. Uh, and Lord, you, you just added more and flipped that on its head. You said to do what we wish others would do to us. Father, thank you for the challenge. And thank you for your spirit who enables us with that kind of love and self-sacrifice. You're so good to us for that. And Father, would we also be thankful for the path you've given us. Uh, even when we're tempted or even pressured by the world um, to, towards cynicism or disdain for what sounds like a harshly exclusive system, um, Father, I just am so thankful you threw me a life raft. I am so thankful that I was dead and you accomplished life for me and gave me new life in the only way that it could have happened. So Father, would my pride and arrogance never get in the way of your sacrificial love and me accepting that? I wanna pray over um, those today who have never placed faith in you. For some reason, they just have not pulled the trigger. They've been maybe even coming, maybe hearing, maybe connected to Christian community for a while, but they've not made a decision. There's things that they're attracted to about you, but they've not made the decision. I just pray right now that they would decide that. that they would right now in their, in their own spirit, they would be praying that they admit they're sinful. They admit they have problems they can't fix. They would believe that Jesus, you died for their sins and rose again from the dead. And then God, that they would choose to follow you that they would place all their faith in you and they would completely surrender their life. I pray that they would do that right now. 
And Father, for so many of us, uh, we attempt to follow you daily, but still we are um, maybe more selective in the way that we surrender to you. So there's still, um, there's still parts of ourselves, there's still parts of our rhythms and our life and our habits that, and even shadowy corners of our hearts that we just don't have surrendered to you. Father, I pray that you would lead us to a place of, of full surrender, that we would move um, even further past simple attraction to full committed decision. Jesus, we love you. We pray that you'd be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.